Blog Talk Radio. Pardon me, what did you what did you say? What did you say? You're the self-proclaimed future of the WWE? What are you, the standard bearer of the WWE? You really think that's what you are? The hell with that. You know what? I got a little question for you. Why? Why have I already heard twice tonight that John Cena beat Randy Orton in Hell in a Cell? Why did I hear that Randy Orton lost to John Cena in Hell in a Cell? You know what? Think about it for one second. Maybe, maybe I lost last night because last Monday night on Raw, you took it upon yourself to curb stomp me. Now, you got one hell of a finish, kid. I'm still seeing stars. As a matter of fact, I feel like checking myself back in anger management like I did in 06. For real, but I'm not. You know why? Because I'm here. I made a promise to myself. I made a promise to myself that if the authority didn't handle it, if the authority didn't deal with you, that I was going to deal with you. That I would eventually deal with you, and that's why. Oh, This is you and me. Well, we're not going to do this. You're going to take the night off. Get on your bus. Get on your bus. Get something to drink. Relax. Take the night off, Randy. All right? When the time is right, we will deal with this. But this is not the night. Emotions are too high. Hell in the cell is over with. We will move. Randy Orton spat in the face of authority. And he made it perfectly clear, guys. He told the authority, you deal with Seth Rollins or I will. And Randy Orton did tonight. And it looks like Triple H has lost it. And by that I mean lost control of the authority. Thanks for watching the show. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for choosing King Jordan Radio for Tuesday, October 28th, 2014. This is King Jordan you're listening to. Tonight on the show, we will recap Hell in the Cell. We'll talk about The Undertaker, Sting, and much, much more. Uh, here to join us to talk about that is our wrestling insider out of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Double J, JJ. Good evening, JJ, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Hey, King, great to be on. Like you said, so much to talk about. What a week for wrestling. Uh, very excited to get the show started. Absolutely, and... Uh, Let's see if we have uh, either Dom or Blackjack uh, holding on, because we do have a line. Let's go to line three. Dominic, Blackjack, are you there? Blackjack, are you there? Brother JJ. Brother King. Brother Blackjack. Did the article make it this week? Yeah, he made it this week in the Sun Times, yeah. Very good. I hear an echo again. I, I hope that doesn't start throughout the whole show. Uh, yeah, I hear it too. But uh, 
Yeah, maybe call back on another phone, Blackjack. Blackjack. Yeah. Okay. All right, DJ. Uh, let's start off with uh, a recap of the uh, the pay per view. Any thoughts? Yeah, Hell in a Cell. Of course, uh, this was the sixth annual Hell in a Cell pay per view, and uh, it started off. They did a pre-show with uh, the Miz and Damien Mizdow, but uh, enough of that. The, the, the actual pay-per-view kicked off with a two-out-of-three falls match, which could easily be one of the uh, matches of the year for the WWE. I mean, we saw Dolph Ziggler versus Zorro for the Intercontinental Championship in a two-out-of-three falls match. And usually a match like that, you know, it takes a long time. It's a lot of preparation. I mean, you you have, of course, two out of potential three falls. You know, there's going to be a lot of wrestling. I mean, is there anyone better than Cesaro and someone like Dolph Ziggler? These guys put on a tremendous performance. I mean, it was just an unbelievable match. These guys started off strong with this counter-wrestling. There were so many holds, and these guys just had that kind of classic stalemate. It was just just really old-school grappling. I think uh, a lot of fans must have just loved that. Wrestling fans, diehard wrestling fans, had to love the way these guys kicked off the show. And eventually the wrestling turned into hardcore just wrestling. These guys were very physical. Uh, there was one moment in the match where I saw maybe the craziest top rope suplex that I have ever seen. It was scary because there was a moment where, of course, Cesaro and Ziggler on the top rope, and I believe Cesaro was about to deliver a top rope suplex, but Ziggler had kind of wrapped his legs around Cesaro's body. So Ziggler's feet weren't even on the turnbuckle. So basically, Cesaro was holding Ziggler around him, and he still managed to lift up Ziggler off of his body and deliver the top rope suplex. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Paige. She has this finishing move called the Rampage, and it kind of looks like a cradle suplex that turns into like a DDT drop. But this was Cesaro on the top rope in the same position and delivering a top rope suplex. And usually your opponent is also on the ropes with you, and they can kind of jump over Like I said, Dolph Ziggler's feet weren't even touching the ropes. They were around Cesaro. So Cesaro had to muscle a human being over 200 pounds while he was balancing on the top rope, deliver that suplex. It was unbelievable. The physical strength, they really say it, you know, each and every time he competes pound for pound, Cesaro has to be one of the most impressive, strongest men in the WWE today. I mean, Mark Henry might be the world's strongest man. John Cena might have one of the biggest physiques, but Cesaro is so impressive in that ring. He does things that I've never seen before, and it was just a tremendous match. But Dolph Ziggler was in a predicament where Cesaro actually brought back the swing. We haven't seen Cesaro do the swing in such a long time. Finally, he busted it out. He did the swing to Dolph Ziggler. He went for a pin. Ziggler kicked out, but while he was still in the pin predicament, Ziggler kind of hooked onto Cesaro, rolled him over in a cradle, and he got the first pinfall. 
And, of course, that pissed off Cesaro because he should have got the first pinfall so that Dolph Ziggler kind of sneaked one in. That kind of pissed him off, and he started attacking him. And, of course, the ref put a stop to it because there's usually a break after the first fall. So the ref kind of spaced them out. Dolph Ziggler got a chance to compose himself, and they started at it again. Again, these guys just putting on a tremendous match. And believe it or not, Dolph Ziggler got a clean sweep. He actually scored the second fall by hitting his patent zigzag finishing move. Cesaro didn't get one pinfall in this two out of three falls match. It was a match that made Dolph Ziggler look like a very strong intercontinental champion. And like I said, the match itself could easily have been one of the top matches of the year in the WWE. Just an awesome performance by both guys. What a way to kick off Hell in the Cell. Just really great. Next up, of course, they had a Divas match with Nikki Bella versus Brie Bella, in which the loser would become the winner's personal assistant for 30 days. And, you know, the Divas match, you know, they're not always the greatest. The fans always kind of go to the bathroom or whatever. But I really think that Nikki and Brie, they did their best to put on, uh, you know, a pretty strong performance. There was one moment in the match where Brie was emulating her husband, Daniel Bryan. She even took a risk and did a suicide dive to Nikki, who was outside the ring. So I give Brie a lot of credit for being fearless. I mean, it's not often we see the Divas fly around the ring and taking high risks. So, you know, was it the greatest match of the night? No, no but I do give them credit for trying to put a really uh, well match together. And, of course, you know, the fans were kind of behind Brie because of the yes movement. But in this kind of match, do you want Brie to win and to have her, her sister kind of, you know, tag along and tell her, oh, get my you know, luggage and whatever. This is a match that's really tailor-made for the heel. And, of course, Nikki Bella being the heel, she's going to boss her sister around. She's going to humiliate her. It's her way to get over on Brie. So this was a match that I knew right away Nikki was going to win. And that's basically what happened. Nikki hit her finishing move, which is sort of that torture rack drop. And I, I believe she calls it the rack attack, which is fitting for Nikki, because if you've seen Nikki, she has a very impressive one. But uh, Nikki wins, and of course now Brie is her personal assistant. And now you will see Brie, uh, if you saw Raw, you know, Nikki's been bossing her around, throwing coffee and, uh, you know, drinks in her face and doing all kinds of stuff. So we're going to see how this turns out in the next month. Next up, the Tag Team Championship, the Usos defend... Usos were challenging uh, Goldust and Stardust for the tag titles. Again, these guys rarely ever disappoint. Uh, Goldust is better than ever. He's doing things he didn't even do 15 years ago. Stardust, Cody Rhodes is really sort of coming into his own, into this really bizarre, weird, creepy character. He's really embracing it and going all out. I mean, I don't even know what they're talking about half the time with this cosmic key and all this goof, goofiness, but it's it's very interesting and adds new layers to the Rhodes brothers. So it's very it's very interesting. Like I said, the Usos probably one of the best legit tag teams in the WWE. Like I said, these guys really ever disappoint. They had a really nice uh, match, similar to the match they had last month at Night of Champions. And uh, it, there was the fans were really into it. There was a "This is awesome" chant. Uh, the Usos just uh, got so close to getting the tag titles back, but to no avail. Goldust Stardust retained 
the tag team titles. So it, it was a really good match, uh, but I think they have better. And I just think, unfortunately, one of the only problems with this match was in the last month, we've seen so many six-man tag matches. We've seen so many tag matches between the Rhodes brothers and the Usos. Even though they put on you know, really good, solid matches, we've just seen them face each other so much. I think the fans weren't as into it as they could have been. Unfortunately, the tag division in the WWE is not very deep, which is unfortunate. But uh, the match itself, like I said, was pretty good. It was really good. Uh, Goldust, Stardust retained the titles. Next up was the first of the, I guess, dual main event, if you will, the first Hell in the Cell of the night. Believe it or not, this was not the main event. This was not the closing of this pay-per-view was Randy Orton versus John Cena. A lot of people were shocked that these two guys weren't the main event and didn't close the pay-per-view. But if you find out, which I will tell you later, uh, the match between Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose, you're going to know why these guys didn't close the show. But to uh, Randy Orton and John Cena's credit, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of point to this match. I mean, it was kind of put together at the last minute. I mean, the whole point of it was that John Cena was fighting for an opportunity to face Seth Rollins, and he lost, okay? John Cena lost to Dean Ambrose. Dean Ambrose won. He got the opportunity to face Seth Rollins. So what does John Cena get being the loser of that? He gets a number one contendership to the WWE World Heavyweight title. I don't know in what universe that makes sense, but that's what happened. John Cena... Randy Orton in a number one contenders match for the WWE Championship. And, uh, they, you know, it's funny. These guys have been, they came in the WWE in 2002. They've had an on-again, off-again rivalry. We talked about it last week, that this was their ninth one-on-one pay-per-view match together. These guys have faced each other so many times in the last decade. I don't know of any other superstar who's been in the WWE as long as these two guys in the last maybe 30 years or so. I mean, when you think of some of uh, the all-time greats who have been in the WWE, even they were only in the company for such a short while. They didn't have, you know, even guys like, you know, Steve Austin. Steve Austin was maybe, uh, you know, in the WWE for, what, six years or so, from, what, 95 to uh, 2001 or two before he did the, uh, you know, the walkout. But uh, even, uh, you know, Bret Hart. Bret Hart was in the WWE for about 13 years. And uh, guys like The Rock. The Rock was in the WWE for maybe eight years, if you can believe that, from 96 to 2004. So these guys have been in there for over 12 years now. And they've been on top of the WWE for at least 10 of those years. I mean, Randy Orton would win the World Heavyweight title early on. John Cena would follow up and win his world title soon after at WrestleMania. And these guys have just been in the spotlight for so long. And for the most part, I think the fans are sick of Cena. They're a little tired of Orton. Orton's been kind of stale lately until if you uh, that clip you played at Raw, which was might have been one of his best performances to date. But for the Hell in a Cell, it didn't really feel like these guys needed to be there. Plus, they already had a Hell in a Cell match back in 2009. But, like I said, to their credit, they pulled out all the stops. They put together 
a WrestleMania quality match. When I say WrestleMania, usually in WrestleMania when you have your the top stars uh, facing each other, there's a lot of kind of false finishes where guys will hit each other's finishing move and they'll kick out and the fans won't know you know, who's going to win. I mean, usually when someone hits their finishing move, it's the end of the match, it's game over. But in this case, we must have seen so many RKOs and uh, attitude adjustments but there was one really cool moment where Cena did uh, try to hit an attitude adjustment on Orton, and Orton countered the attitude adjustment in midair, and while he was in midair, he landed an RKO, and it was just a thing of beauty to see. It was just a real great moment, and uh, it just looked amazing. I thought that was it. I was rooting for Orton to win just because we haven't seen Randy Orton versus Brock Lesnar. And I was thinking down the line, you could have Seth Rollins potentially cash in on Orton. But that wouldn't happen. The match would continue. And, of course, since it is Hell in the Cell, you know, Orton could do a low blow on Cena. Uh, he even tried to do a punt. And then that turned into another attitude adjustment. As I said before, there are so many uh, finishing moves in this match. They eventually they pulled out a table and John Cena would hit an attitude adjustment off the top rope, crashing Orton through a table, and then finally John Cena would get the win and would become the number one contender, and he will fight Brock Lesnar again for the third time. I don't know if it will be this year, because we don't know when we'll see Brock Lesnar. If Brock Lesnar comes back to the WWE maybe in January for the Royal Rumble, I hope he would come back before the year is over, but we don't know what his schedule is, which is amazing to me because he is the WWE World Heavyweight Champion, as Paul Heyman likes to say, the reigning and defending, and yet he's not defending the title, is he? Was he at the pay-per-view last month? No. Was he at the pay-per-view this month? No. Will he be at the pay-per-view next month? I don't know. Nobody knows. So it's a shame that we have a guy who is the champion and who's not defending the title. I mean, hell, Daniel Bryan broke his neck. He wasn't defending the title, and they stripped him of the belt. Why don't they strip Lesnar of the belt? But that's another story. But, like I said, Cena, Orton, whether you loved it or hated it, these guys worked really hard in that match, and it was, it was a pretty good match for them. I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it, believe it or not. Next up, they had the United States Championship, The Miz, and taking on Sheamus. And, of course, Damian Mizdow was ringside, and he was mirroring everything that the Miz was doing. And, you know, the fans were more focused on Damian Mizdow. They're cheering for Mizdow. You know, anytime the Miz was doing an offensive move, if he was doing defensive, you would see Sandow sort of mirror it. If Miz had Sheamus in a headlock, you would see Sandow ringside with a headlock on thin air. You know, if Sheamus were to kick the Miz, Damian Sandow would pretend that he was being kicked. So he was mirroring everything that was going on in this match. The point that, uh, I mean, uh, there was one moment, of course, where Sheamus did hit the bro kick, and he did beat The Miz. And then when The Miz was laying unconscious in the ring, of course, Damian Sandow rolled up into the ring, and now he's pretending to be unconscious, laying next to The Miz. So then Sheamus is looking at Damian Sandow, who's laying next to The Miz. He picks up... The Miz, and of course Damian Sandow has to stand up. So now Sheamus grabs uh, the Miz's arms and he starts doing the YMCA. And as he's doing the YMCA with the unconscious Miz, 
you see, of course, Damian Sandow mirroring everything that the Miz is doing, and he's doing the YMCA as well. And it was just a moment. The fans enjoyed it. They were there. You can hear them laughing. Like I said, not this isn't everyone's cup of tea. They don't like seeing Sandow being used as a stunt double. They feel he's better than that. But I've always said that at least they're using Sandow, whereas before Sandow wasn't even on television. He wasn't getting any opportunities. He was kind of forgotten. He was kind of being thrown aside. So at least now he's getting the spotlight, and I hope this leads to something bigger for Sandow in the future. But for right now, this is what we're kind of settled for, seeing Sandow as the Miz's sort of stunt double and mirroring everything he does. I hope that they form a tag team. I think the WWE needs a tag team right now, and they could add something to the division. But uh, we'll see if that happens or not. Of course, next up, Rusev and the Big Show. And they've been really focused on promoting this USA, Russia. They've tried to make it as personal as possible. And uh, it just, I don't know. They, They tried to make it personal, and I'm not sure if the fans were that invested into it. Of course, they were chanting USA. Everybody wanted to see Big Show win. But, unfortunately, that was not the case. Rusev did pick up the victory, although it was based on a distraction from Mark Henry. Mark Henry, who's been buddy-buddy with the Big Show as of late, made his way to ringside, and that sort of distracted the Big Show, even though Mark Henry at the time was there to encourage, the, to kind of cheer the Big Show on. He ended up being more of a distraction, which caused Rusev to do a number of super kicks. Rusev must have did three or four super kicks to the Big Show's noggin, and that eventually led to Rusev putting the accolade in and getting Big Show to pass out. And then next up for just... Big Show and Mark Henry have both been in the WWE for a very long time. Talking about wrestling in WWE for a long time. Big Show, oh, yeah. 98, uh, I believe, or 99, rather. And uh, Mark Henry uh, back in 96. So, uh, wow. You know, yeah, uh, those two deserve the Hall of Fame uh, one day. Oh, definitely, especially the the Big Show. I mean, his time in wrestling, even though he came in the WWE in about 99, as you said, his time goes even before that when he first came into WCW and he was in WCW for a number of years and he won their world heavyweight title and he had matches with Hulk Hogan and, you know, Ric Flair and Sting. I mean, the big show has really done it all and has had a tremendous career. And as you pointed out, if there's anyone who deserves to be in the hall of fame is definitely the big show and Mark Henry too. in, in a lot of ways, he's done a lot, his longevity in the WWE, I think, is surprising to a lot of people. He's had a lot of memorable moments early on in his career with the Nation of Domination, with Farouk and The Rock. And then, of course, later on, he would become Sexual Chocolate and have a, an infamous storyline with Mae Young giving birth to a hand, which was kind of ridiculous, but, you know, it was a fun at the time. And since then, you know, they've tried to reestablish him with the Hall of Pain. And, of course, now he's got a little bit of a new look. He shaved his head. And uh, we'll see what happens with Mark Henry uh, in the future. But, uh, like you said, definitely two potential Hall of Famers in the future. So they've really had two long careers in the uh, WWE. 
But as uh, the pay-per-view continues, uh, another Divas match, this one for the Divas Championship, AJ Lee defending her title against Paige. And <clears throat> while I really enjoy uh, AJ and Paige, they've had this rivalry for a number of months now, I just feel that they haven't really delivered in making this. I want to see something to the likes of Trish and Lita when their rivalry was so uh, big and important. They had so many great matches, and the fans were into it. I don't know, again, if the fans are that into this rivalry, if they're that into AJ or that into Paige. I just feel like they're missing the mark, and I don't know what it is. I can't pinpoint it. But there's just something missing. Again, they didn't have a bad match. I don't think I've ever seen AJ or Paige have a bad match, but I just want them to have a great match. I want to see them go out there and deliver. And they had, you know, an okay, a good match. And it was just, uh, you know, Alicia Fox was, of course, with Paige at the time. And there was one moment where uh, Paige even emulated Cesaro. Uh, Cesaro has this, he used to do at least, uh, where he would be sort of outside the ring and he would grab an opponent's legs and he would kind of slingshot him into the barricade. And Paige actually did that to A.J. Lee. And that, again, like I said, it reminded me of Cesaro, but it was just something nice, something new. It was a way to show Paige's vicious side. So it was a, just a nice moment, but I just wish that there were more moments like that where we really got to see Paige and AJ really kind of deliver something special and unique and create more of an interest in the Divas division. But like I said, unfortunately, I don't know if that happened. Again, the fans, eh, they were not really that into it. Of course, you have some fans who are still chanting for CM Punk. Some fans are trying to rally behind AJ. I mean, she is a fan favorite right now. The people do like her. I just, again, wish that there was just more emphasis on them delivering, you know, really great matches and the fans being behind it. The fans like it, but they're not as behind it as they were back then with Trish and Lita. And it's just a shame because I would love to see Paige and AJ deliver. You know, I've seen NXT where uh, Charlotte and Natty Neidhart or one of the, the girls in NXT named Bailey. These, those women put on some tremendous matches in NXT. And I would just love to see that kind of that kind of, you know, work ethic, that kind of, you know, five-star quality match on the WWE roster. And we, for some reason, it just gets lost in translation. I don't know why, but it's just unfortunate. But AJ Lee did retain the Divas Championship. She nailed the Black Widow, her, her submission maneuver on Paige. And, of course, Paige upset she eventually pushed uh, Alicia Fox, and she goes, you're not my best friend anymore, and she threw a fit, and she got all upset. But, uh, you know, it was it was a good match. I just wanted it to be better than good. I wanted it to be great. And, of course, now we come towards the main event of the night, the match that closed the show. And that was the, I believe, what the WWE announced was the 30th, Hell in the Cell match. They've had, if you can believe that, 30 Hell in the Cell over the last nearly decade, which is pretty amazing to me that they've had so many. But Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins. This is the match we've been waiting to see for months now. 
I mean, this all goes all the way back to when with the Shield we're we're together, and of course Seth Rollins were to hit Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose with a steel chair joining the Authority. So this has been building since then. Dean Ambrose has been wanting revenge. He's been wanting to get his hands on Seth Rollins, and the moment he did. Seth Rollins did his finishing move, the curb stomp, and he curb stomped Dean Ambrose's head through cinder blocks. And, of course, Dean Ambrose would take time off, and we wouldn't see him for a number of weeks. And then eventually he would finally make his return and get his revenge on Seth Rollins. And he's doing everything he can. As I mentioned earlier, he got the win against John Cena. Dean Ambrose beat WWE's golden boy, John Cena, and he won this opportunity against Seth Rollins. And as I said before, they main evented the pay-per-view. Why did they main event the pay-per-view? Well, I'm going to tell you why. We uh, Last week on Raw, of course, Mick Foley was a surprise guest. He told them that Hell in the Cell would define uh, their careers just like it did his and that they would pull out all the stops. And boy, oh boy, was Mick Foley right because these two guys – did everything they could to make that match special, to make the Hell in the Cell feel like it did all those years ago when The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels wrestled in it, when The Undertaker and, of course, Mick Foley, and he threw them off the, the cage and he created a highlight reel that we'll see for the rest of our lives. And I think in 2014, we're going to see clips of the Hell in the Cell of Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins for the next several years. These guys created something special, much like that one Hell in the Cell between Foley and The Undertaker. Believe it or not, if you remember, that match started. The match started with Mick Foley climbing the cage, going at the very top of the, the Hell in the Cell, <clears throat> and Undertaker climbing up as well, and then eventually it would lead to Taker throwing Foley off the cage. This time around, Dean Ambrose would climb up the hell in the cell, would be at the top of the cage, and it would be Seth Rollins who was actually too scared because he didn't want to climb up the, that top of that hell in the cell. So instead, Seth Rollins instructed his stooges, uh, Joey Mercury and Jamie Noble, to climb up after Ambrose and to bring him down. So Jamie Noble and Joey Mercury were to climb up the hell in the cell. And, of course, Dean Ambrose, being the crazy lunatic that he is, he had a kendo stick strapped to his back, and he would lay out the stooges. And this, of course, would leave Seth Rollins enough time to climb up and to attack Dean Ambrose at the top of the hell in the cell. And it, it is scary, man. Let me tell you, when you see these guys brawling on top of that cell – and basically, I don't know how, they're about 20, 25 feet up in the air, and all they really have is the, the chain-link fence under their feet and then just the drop uh, to where the ring is on the ground. It is, it's a scary thing to see, and I think at one point Dean Ambrose did a suplex to, uh, it might have been Jamie Noble, on the, on, the chain, on the ceiling, on the top of the Hell in the Cell ceiling, he did a suplex, and I was scared to death that that chain link ground, the floor, the top of the Hell in the Cell would just you know, collapse like it did with Mick Foley. And you see these guys just come crashing down. I mean, it is a very uh, a surreal thing to see. But eventually, of course, that wouldn't last. And eventually, Dean Ambrose 
would try to chase Seth Rollins. Rollins would try to escape and climb back down. But as Rollins was climbing down the hell in a cell, Dean Ambrose would, of course, would chase him away. And while they were, I would say, about halfway uh, above the cage, they were making their way down. They were probably at the halfway point. So not exactly at the very top, not exactly, you know, like I said, with it 25 feet up in the air. So maybe about, I don't know, 15, 10 feet up in the air. They were they caught each other. And, of course, Ambrose was trying to throw some blows and some punches at Seth Rollins. He tried to bang his head off the cell. And instead, he did a headbutt to Seth Rollins. And as Dean Ambrose did a headbutt to Seth Rollins, both Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins were to lose their balance and were to fall off the hell in the cell cage, and they crashed down through the announce tables. Of course, as Seth Rollins were to fall through the Spanish announce table, and Dean Ambrose were to fall through the uh, announce table with Cole Lawler and JBL. But what a moment that was. Again, they must have showed a replay of that moment about a half a dozen times. And it was worth seeing because, like I said, Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, these two guys were out to prove something. And they did. They pulled out all the stops. They took a huge, huge stunt. And uh, the fans loved every second of it. Of course, at this point, Rollins and Ambrose, they weren't moving. They just fell how many feet up in the air, crashing through the announce tables. They weren't moving. Uh, some uh, EMTs came out. They put them both on stretchers. They were just about to wheel Seth Rollins back up the ramp. And as Dean Ambrose was on his stretcher, he was fighting to get off of it. And the fans were loving it. They were cheering for Ambrose. And, of course, Ambrose would chase the uh, EMTs who were pulling away Seth Rollins. He would even punch some of the, the EMTs, and he unstrapped Rollins out of the stretcher and just kind of shoved them off and he dragged them back into the hell in the cell. And finally, the match were to get started. All this happened, and the bell still didn't, still didn't ring yet. I mean, it was just uh, just a wild, chaotic uh, moment. It was just uh, it was what hell in the cell used to be when it first started. It was very unpredictable. Having a guy like Ambrose, you didn't know what was going to happen. And it was just uh, just amazing moment. Ambrose would go under the ring and, of course, pull out a bag of toys and chairs, and he would throw a bunch of chairs in the middle of the ring and try to use them against Seth Rollins. Rollins would then take uh, some of the chairs, and then he would bash uh, Dean Ambrose with it. I mean, it was just uh, unbelievable. These guys were just really just kicking the crap out of each other. There was one moment where uh, Ambrose threw Rollins outside of the ring, and he did a suicide dive. Now, you got to remember, this is hell in the cell. So there's a cell wrapped around the ring. It's not necessarily a cage match where the cage is kind of strapped to the ring. This is The cell is outside the ring, so there's not a lot of room ringside. So to do a move like a suicide dive, it really is suicide because there's not a whole lot of space between you, the cell, and your opponent. So Ambrose basically did a dive, and he went head first practically into the cage. I mean, the, the guys, he's nuts. I mean, it was just, a, like I said, chaotic match. These guys pulling out all the stops. At one point, Ambrose pulled out a table, and he tried to set it up between 
again, not a lot of space in the, the, the ringside area. Normally you could maybe get a table, set it up from the ring apron, and put it towards the announce table. Well, there's no announce table, so you can't do that. So basically – uh, I think it was Ambrose, he set up the, the table. I put it on the apron, but he had to sort of balance it against the hell in the cell, which kind of made it a little uneven. And he would have put Seth Rollins on the table. He would climb the top rope and deliver a, a crazy lunatic elbow drop, crashing down through the table and Seth Rollins. Like I said, these guys pulled out all the stops to make this a very memorable uh, Hell in the Cell with uh, tons of highlight reels that, like I said, they're going to be showing for maybe the next 10 years. It was just unbelievable. At one point, though, the, the Stooges did try to interfere in the match, and it, it just, I mean, it was just a very chaotic match. And uh, Kane interfered while uh, they were ringside, too. Even though they were locked outside the cell, he would use a fire extinguisher to try to blind uh, Dean Ambrose, it was just uh, an unbelievable, you know, performance by both men. And even though Dean Ambrose got so close, he got so close, he actually went underneath the ring and pulled out some cinder blocks. And it looked like Dean Ambrose was going to curb stomp Seth Rollins' head into the cinder blocks, which is what, as I mentioned earlier, Seth Rollins did to him. And, of course, uh, Ambrose missed a number of weeks although at the time he was filming a movie, but for wrestling purposes, he was injured, he was incapacitated, and he came back seeking revenge. Classic uh, wrestling storyline. But uh, in this case, it was Ambrose who was going to deliver the curb stop to Rollins, and just about as he was about to nail the curb stop, crashing uh, Rollins' skull into the cinder blocks, there was a blackout. And the whole arena went black. And the next thing you would see... Seth Rollins had disappeared, the cinder blocks had disappeared, and there would be a lantern in the ring glowing. And again, the, the lights were still out in the arena, so all you really saw was this lantern in the middle of the ring, and there was smoke coming from the lantern. And what was I could only describe as one of the single most strangest things I've ever seen in wrestling. I thought I was watching Star Wars. There was a hologram. It, I'm assuming it was a hologram of Bray Wyatt, and it was just so strange. I mean, if you ever saw the original Star Wars movies from the 1970s, there's a scene uh, where R2-D2 shows a hologram of Princess Leia saying, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, or, or whatever. I thought I was going to see that with, with Bray Wyatt or, or something. And here I see this, this lantern, this smoke, this hologram of, of this figure some people uh, said maybe it's Sister Abigail, but to me it looked more like Bray Wyatt. And Dean Ambrose was as perplexed as I was. So he's, he's trying to reach out to touch this hologram, and here comes Bray Wyatt running into the ring now and just clotheslining Dean Ambrose and eventually delivering his finishing move, the Sister Abigail, to Ambrose, which then, of course, gives Seth Rollins the perfect opportunity to pin Dean Ambrose and beating him in the main event at the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view inside Hell in a Cell. Seth Rollins was victorious. It was an unbelievable night in a very unforgettable Hell in a Cell that I said 
I guarantee you people will be talking about. Again, a lot of people were complaining, like usual. They didn't like the finish of the match. They didn't like Bray Wyatt coming in and interfering. They didn't like the fact that Rollins didn't get a clean victory or Dean Ambrose didn't get a clean victory. But, again, these are all purposes to establish Seth Rollins. It's all an opportunity for Dean Ambrose to go on and move on to his next feud. And the fact that we haven't seen Bray Wyatt in a while really made the audience go nuts when they saw him. So uh, the fans are excited to see what happens next with Bray Wyatt, Dean Ambrose. They do have a brief history together. I mean, uh, anyone that remembers the Shield, one of the Shield's greatest rivalries was when they got to face the Wyatt family. It was something that uh, wrestling fans have been wanting to see. The Shield, who was running things for about a year and a half to two years, the Wyatts who just kind of came in and then they take over and then they're you know running the yard, so to speak. And then finally the two forces came face-to-face, Shield versus the Wyatts. So this isn't something that uh, is too unfamiliar waters, as they say. Dean Ambrose, Bray Wyatt, it should make some very interesting uh, promos as well as uh, their matches. should be just a lot of fun to watch. So we would see a little bit more of that at Raw. But overall, Hell in the Cell, again, I criticize the WWE for saying they did a very, let me just put it this way, they did a piss-poor job of promoting the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. They basically waited until the last week to even announce most of the matches that were going to be on the pay-per-view. But again, this is the new this is the new formula for the W. This is their new sort of business standard. They don't have to spend an entire month promoting the pay-per-view. If you're a network subscriber, you're pretty much guaranteed you're locked in at buying this pay-per-view for the next, you know, 6 months or whenever your subscription ends. So, I mean, you're going to buy the pay-per-view whether you realize it or not. You're you're locked in. So it doesn't really matter if they go out of their way to promote it. But, you know, it's just an old-school mentality. You know, you want to spend time to deliver in the pay-per-view, get people excited to know what they're paying for, especially if they are paying on pay-per-view in which they're spending at least 55 to $60 if you're buying it in uh, HD and high def. So it's, it's a lot of money, and uh, it's just for the fans – you know, it may be not always worth that money. So that's why you get the network. You only got to pay nine ninety nine. But uh, I got to say, all in all, though, Hell in the Cell did deliver, though. Even though the matches came off at the last minute, everybody, for the most part, delivered. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a bad match. You know, maybe the Rusev-Big Show match, you know, it's hard. You're not going to get... You know, it's it's very difficult for those guys. Rusev's still trying to make his mark as a, as a top heel in the company. Big Show, again, a guy who's done it all, and I think everyone just assumes he's just going to steamroll right through Rusev. So when that didn't happen, I think a lot of people were disappointed. But that's the idea. You're supposed to be disappointed when a guy like Rusev gets a cheap uh, victory off a distraction yeah. from Mark Henry. That's kind of, you know, his job as the heel is to get that heat. So, uh, again, the pay-per-view, you know, Dolph Ziggler, Cesaro, what a way to start it off. A-plus match between Ziggler and Cesaro, like I said, easily could be one of the match top matches of the year. It is phenomenal. I would say to anyone, if you have the WWE Network, go on there, watch Hell in a Cell just for that match alone, just to see quality wrestling. You know, you don't need the Hell in a Cell structure. You don't need any gimmick. Just two guys going out there and wrestling. 
But uh, again, and, good uh, overall paper. Do you think the Dean Ambrose was the match of the year? Dean Ambrose uh, is just very impressive. He is. The, they give him the nickname the Lunatic Fringe. He's unstable. He's someone that you always have to keep your eye on. I think the guy's got uh, a bright future. Again, I don't know if that's going to change when, you know, Roman Reigns comes back from his injury. I don't know if that's going to change when Daniel Bryan comes back from whether or not he has a second surgery or not. Again, that's always up in the air. You never know what's going on with Daniel Bryan. It's to say, but Dean Ambrose has said in multiple interviews that, you know, he's not so much worried about someone saying, oh, well, when those guys come back, I'm going to lose my spot now. Dean Ambrose is doing everything he can to sort of carve out his own spot. Even if he's not in the main event, people are going to remember and know Dean Ambrose. He's a very memorable character. He's very different. He's very unique. He's someone that does stand out, and he's someone, to me, is must-see. You have to see Dean Ambrose. There was one point in which, uh, just before the match started, actually, it might have been on the pre-show, maybe it was during the pay-per-view, in which uh, he, he cut a promo on Seth Rollins, and he talked about how, you know, Halloween coming up, he said the the most popular costume of the year is going to be Seth Rollins' costume. And he said the Seth Rollins' costume is this. It's a combination of a walking dead zombie having sex with Dracula's grandmother, and nine months later she gives birth to something that looks something like, uh, you know, roadkill and oatmeal on a pogo stick. And I'm thinking, what the hell? is This guy just comes up with the goofiest, craziest, you know, scenarios. I mean, it, the people were just cracking up who heard that. I mean, the fact that he could even say something like that, it was just a lot of fun. And like I said, it makes Dean Ambrose that kind of guy that's must-see. you got to watch him. You don't know what he's going to say. You don't know where he's going to go or how ridiculous he's going to be, and he's just a very interesting character, and he's a guy that's going to work his ass off in that ring. He's going to take chances. He's going to take risks. He's going to do whatever he can. Uh, He's a guy who's very hungry to be where he is, and I don't think he's going to give up that spot so easily. He's going to carve out his own spot. Absolutely, and uh, let's go over to, uh, well, so you gave it a, on a scale of one to five, what would you say the pay-per-view was? I would give it a, a, a solid eight, you know. I think, you know, could the, the Rusev Big Show, could the Divas matches uh, have been better? Yeah, I mean, could Sheamus and The Miz have been less comedic? You know, yeah, but like I said, right now they're establishing Damian Sandow, so if as long as there's a uh, a plan in place for him, I can understand a lot of these comedic things they're doing with Sandow and The Miz. But, uh, you know, Ziggler, Cesaro, A+. Plus. You know, the Usos and the uh, Goldust and Stardust, like I said, these guys always deliver really solid performances. Even Randy Orton, John Cena, you know, we've seen that match a million times. I think there was even a fan who held up a sign that said, enjoy Orton versus Cena 121, as if, you know, this is the 100th time we've seen them wrestle, you know. But uh, for the most part, these guys, you know, they worked hard, they delivered, uh, they made it, they tried to make it special. They try to make it a big match feel, especially because it was for the number one contendership to Brock Lesnar's title. 
you know, they you know, they did their best, they delivered on that front. Uh, you know, Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins again, these guys made the hell in the cell. That's why they main evented, because if you would have had uh Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins at the midway point of the pay per view, and if you had John Cena and Randy Orton to follow that, they couldn't. Nothing John Cena or Randy Orton could do could follow what Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose did that night. Those two guys deserved that spot. The fall they took off the Hell in the Cell, all the stunts they did in the ring with the tables, even that crazy thing with the, the hologram. Again, I, I can't recall a time where I ever remember in wrestling seeing someone use a hologram to, to get one over on somebody. That that was very strange and bizarre on a whole different level, but it was new, it was different, and, you know, I'm all for it. So I enjoyed it. I thought, again, even though the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view felt like something they put together, like maybe 24 hours before the damn pay-per-view, it still delivered these guys. Everybody worked really hard that night, and I think it showed. So I would give it an 8. I think it was... I think a lot of people won't like what I say. A lot of people maybe thought that, uh, again, they were unhappy with some of the finishes. They were unhappy with the comedic stuff with Sandow and Miz. They don't like the, the Divas matches. They don't think that they're just a waste of time. But, you know, I look at what these guys are doing and whether or not they're putting their effort into it, if they're working hard, if they're delivering to the best of their ability. Could they do better? Yeah, of course they could. They could, they could do better, but... For what they did, you know, I appreciated their performances. I thought they did, you know, a great job. Like I said, Ziggler, Cesaro, you just can't get better than what they did. There, There is no better. I think those guys put, like I said, A-plus performance. Uh, you know, Ambrose, Rollins, again, nobody really gave them a, a chance. They thought, oh, well, what are these two guys who aren't main eventers doing in the main event, closing the pay-per-view over two guys who are established, like Orton and Cena, but like I said before, there was no way in hell, no matter how over or how popular or how big John Cena and Orton are and the, the decade-long history they have in the WWE, there was no way they could follow that Hell in the Cell performance between Ambrose and Rollins. Those two guys main-evented the pay-per-view. They deserved to be in that main event. They had one of the biggest storylines going into the pay-per-view. You know, Orton Cena besides their decade-long rivalry going into this particular match, it was all just kind of last minute. They said, oh, well, you know, Cena lost against Ambrose. Orton doesn't have anything to do, so let's just throw them together and have them go after Lesnar. But everything that's been happening for the past few months between uh, Ambrose and Rollins with Shield breaking up and Rollins taking Ambrose out with the cinder blocks, this was Ambrose's revenge. It was his opportunity to get Seth Rollins, lock him up inside Hell in a Cell where he has nowhere to run. And Ambrose, even though he lost, and even though they had a bit of a shady finish with Bray Wyatt, it still was an amazing match between those two guys. And even the finish, as bizarre as it was, I was into it, like I said, just because it was something different. Anytime you can do something different that you haven't seen in wrestling, that's a good thing because it's pretty often most of us, if you've been watching wrestling for the past 10, 20, 30, even 40 years, you've seen it all. So if you can do something to surprise the people, then I think that that deserves some credit where credit is due. 
Uh, no question. Uh, let's talk about the uh, following night. Uh, what went down on Raw? And give me your uh, take on Raw. Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, if, if Dominic is out there listening, guess who started off Raw? The Authority. So, of course, Triple H, Stephanie, with Seth Rollins, who who just defeated his you know arch rival, I guess, Dean Ambrose the night before at Hell in a Cell. He's all happy as can be. But, of course, here comes Randy Orton, who, if you remember a week ago, was got curb stomped from Seth Rollins. And as you played that clip uh, at the start of the show, we saw a fired-up Randy Orton. Rand, I've never seen Randy Orton that heated, that hot, that temperament in years. We saw Randy Orton go back to being the viper, being aggressive. He even talked about how he went to anger management in 2006. I mean, Orton was just kind of all over the place. He was just... Just I just couldn't get over Orton. To me, he was just really shining, and you can see that there's going to be that moment where he's going to break away from the authority. It hasn't happened yet, but it's something that they're building towards. And, of course, out of nowhere, of course, which was very popular over the last few weeks, the RKO out of nowhere that uh, took the Internet by storm, Orton hitting the RKO on Seth Rollins, which, again, the authority not too happy about it, but they're trying to keep the peace within the authority. They're trying to keep Orton happy. They're trying to protect uh, their golden child, Seth Rollins. They even called Seth Rollins the new standard uh, in the WWE in wrestling, the standard bearer. He's you know what everyone should uh, aspire to be. He's the future in all this stuff. But uh, again, we would see the Rhodes Dust would be defending their tag titles now against Mark Henry and the Big Show. Despite Big Show's loss and the, uh, Mark Henry's interference, they had a tag match where they were partners. Now, this is kind of another scenario where a lot of wrestling fans are pissed off, which which I can't blame them because here's what happened during this tag match. Of course, Mark Henry and Big Show, even though they're still sort of friends with each other, they're not an opportunity to be tag team champions together. You know, you can tell that Big Show isn't happy that Henry interfered, and he feels that it cost him the match. And at the same time, Henry has been hearing a lot from Big Show how, you know, Mark Henry, you know, let the people down, he let Big Show down, and Big Show just say, hey, you know, you couldn't get the job done, so I will. So Mark Henry kind of upset in his own way, and then all of a sudden the Big Show kind of tags himself into the match, right? So Big Show does sort of a hard tag to the back of Mark Henry, and Mark Henry gets a little upset, and he kind of looks at Big Show like, hey, you know, what the hell? Why did you give me that hard tag? You know, you could have just reached your hand out, and I would have tagged you in. And Big Show getting kind of heated. He goes, oh, you know, it's the Big Show. You can do whatever the hell you wants." So now all of a sudden you have a little hostility between the group. And basically it happens a second time where Big Show tags in Mark Henry and does a sort of, I guess, aggressive tag. He does an aggressive tag. Mark Henry kind of snaps. And then he delivers the world, uh, the world, yeah, the world's strongest slam to the Big Show three times just off Big Show doing a hard tag to Mark Henry. Mark Henry apparently snaps, loses his mind, attacks his own tag team partner, 
does his finishing move, the world's strongest slam, three times to Big Show. And eventually the road does, hey, they just picked up another win. But this, of course, now leaves a lot of fans upset. Oh, God, here's the WWE. They're doing some lame-ass thing where they're turning Mark Henry heel just because of a, a tag. And while I understand that, you know, back in the day, you would see something really dastardly. You would see some guys do some really underhanded things when they turned on somebody. And for Mark Henry to explode at the Big Show over a hard tag, you know, doesn't really qualify as a kind of moment to snap. But again, this is the present-day WWE. This is the PG-era WWE where they're not going to go – they're not going to cross the line. They're not going to go there. They're not going to do the things that, you know, you used to see in wrestling or even the stuff they used to do maybe back in the eighties or in the attitude era where they could go a little bit farther. They could do some wild and crazy things. You're not going to see that in the PG era. So we'll see Mark Henry. I'm sure maybe on SmackDown or raw next week, explain himself. But, uh, again, not a lot of people happy about that particular moment and what caused Henry to snap. But then we would see a, via a Titans run, we would see Roman Reigns come in, and he would be, again, via Titans run. He wasn't live at the arena, but he's talking about his progress, how he's doing, his rehab after his hernia operation, and... Basically, he said that you know he saw, of course, the Hell in a Cell match between his two, you know, brothers, his uh, the Shield brothers and Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins. Of course, he backed up Dean Ambrose and said Ambrose, you know, did everything he could. And Roman Reigns basically said that once he's all healed up, he's going to come back to the WWE and he's going to finally get his hands on Seth Rollins because if you don't remember. Before uh, Roman Reigns had this emergency surgery on his hernia, he was scheduled to have a pay-per-view match with Seth Rollins, which unfortunately never took place. And, uh, you know, it's just something we never got to see. We never got to see Rollins versus Roman Reigns. So that's something that we will probably see further down the line. But, uh, again, we would see A.J. Lee now defending her Divas title against now, Alicia Fox, Paige's best friend, supposedly. And this time, uh, you know, Alicia Fox got the opportunity because last week on Raw, she got a clean win over AJ, so obviously she's getting her shot now. Paige is, of course, ringside trying to support her bestie, but in reality, Paige just kind of distracts Alicia Fox, which again causes... AJ to pick up another win and now we have this dissension between Paige and Alicia Fox and then Paige snaps and she does this post uh, brawl with uh, Alicia Fox she's slamming her around ringside it gets to the point that Jerry Lawler has to interfere and stand and protect Alicia Fox from Paige who basically just went on a rampage on Alicia Fox her former bestie So, again, I don't know what that means for A.J. Lee now because she's still the Divas champion, and she's already beaten Alicia Fox. She's beaten Paige. Now apparently Paige and Alicia Fox are are now enemies, so I don't know if they're going to be battling each other. Again, it it just feels like the the Divas picture is very messy. They don't really know know, what's going on. I don't know if it's going to build to something. Hopefully we'll see someone new 
uh, enter the, the picture. Because we've seen AJ and Paige for the last several months. And like I said, while they've never had a technical bad match, they've always produced you know, a pretty solid you know, match. In my opinion, I don't think they delivered uh, you know, their most potential, the best match they possibly could. And I think they could do definitely better. But unfortunately, and at least in my eyes, I don't think they've delivered on that front. But I hope that now that we've seen Paige and AJ enough times, we'll see someone new you know, enter the picture and maybe challenge AJ for the title. You know, I don't know who they have as a, a top heel uh, in the Divas division. I'm trying to think of, what, Cameron, uh, Eva Marie. I mean, I'm not necessarily sure I want to see them go after AJ. Uh, Natty Nyhart's kind of busy right now. She's kind of doing something with Tyson Kidd. They're sort of in their own little thing. Uh, Naomi, I'm not sure what's going on with Naomi. They don't really show her that often. I'm not sure if she's injured, but... Uh, it's just it's a shame that the Divas division is where it's at. To me, the only person who could really challenge AJ would be Nikki Bella. But we'll see if that happens. So now, <clears throat> next up, John Cena, of course, comes up, promo, of course. He beat Randy Orton at Hell in a Cell. He gets the opportunity to face Brock Lesnar whenever. Because, again, we don't know when Brock's going to come back. Stephanie McMahon then comes out and interrupts Cena and basically says she wants Cena to join the authority. Now, I criticize the WWE for not doing enough to build Hell in a Cell. Here, believe it or not, we still got a few weeks away before the next pay-per-view, which is Survivor Series. Stephanie McMahon now, she's trying to entice Cena to join the authority. Of course, John Cena being Super Cena He's not going to, you know, turn and join the dark side. He's going to stay true to the hustle, loyalty, and respect the, to the C Nation. So he, of course, declines. So now Triple H comes out. So now you have Triple H and Stephanie again on screen together. And then they issue a challenge to John Cena. Since you're not with us, you're against us. So now they're going to have a classic Survivor Series matchup that features Team Authority versus Team Cena. So, on the one hand, they're already starting to promote Survivor Series. It's a miracle. Can you believe that? They're actually getting ready to build a pay-per-view weeks in advance. I'm completely surprised. I'm eating my words. As I was throwing them under the bus for what they did at Hell in a Cell, they decide to actually listen to the fans who were complaining, and they're now starting to build up Survivor Series literally a day after their last pay-per-view. So in that regard, I commend the WWE for picking up initiative and getting ready to promote their next pay-per-view. Of course, Survivor Series, one of the big four. I mean, they better promote this damn pay-per-view. It's one of their with SummerSlam, so it's nice to see them take a little initiative and in getting the, an excitement being built towards the Survivor Series. So now... We're not really sure who's going to be. They haven't really announced who's going to be in Team Authority or who's going to be in Team Cena. We can imagine, of course, Seth Rollins and Kane will be involved with Team Authority. Now the question goes to whether or not Randy Orton will be in Team Authority, or which would might be a great surprise is if Randy Orton joins John Cena's team, which might explain why we saw Cena in Orton, because that could be the final time they face each other 
now that Orton is separating himself from the authority and could potentially become a fan favorite, we might see Orton and Cena work together against the authority. So that's something that could potentially happen down the line. But as the announcers were pointing out, who would want to go up against the authority? They would say anyone who joins John Cena is basically asking for a, a death wish in the sense that you know their life is going to be miserable. The authority is going to do everything they can to make you know their life miserable, handicap matches, you name it. They're just going to destroy whoever wants to join Cena. So, of course, they show John Cena talking to Dolph Ziggler. Now, you can't necessarily hear their conversation, but we all assume <clears throat> that Ziggler will be joining uh, John Cena's team. So, of course, then in the next commercial break, we see Kane approach Ziggler and say that he wants a match with Ziggler tonight. But next up, we will see the Usos. The Usos, as I said before, I really like The Miz. I kind of like Sandow. I like what they're doing. I want to see them as a tag team. So that's what we got. We saw the Usos take on Miz and Miz Dow in a tag team match. And, you know, it was it was an all right match. Of course, Damian Sandow still mirroring uh, the Miz. So when the Miz is out there, even though Sandow is in the match, I mean, he's at the ring apron. He's still mimicking the Miz. So the fans are, you know, they're laughing. And, you know, you see the Miz hit the ropes. And you'll see Sandow just kind of run across the apron like a goofball. So, and they're still doing that sort of comedic thing. But at the, the, at the end of the match, of course, the Usos picked up the victory. But I didn't really like how they picked up the victor, victory. Of course, the Miz is a heel. He's a bad guy. Sandow is kind of, he's kind of borderline. On the one hand, he's a heel, and he's mimicking the Miz, but at the other hand, he's very comedic, he's funny, the fans are behind him, so he's kind of walking that line between the heel and the face. And here you've got the Usos, who are the good guys. They are, without a doubt, the baby faces in this scenario. And yet, the Usos picked up the win by doing twin magic. Now, if you don't know what twin magic is, I mean, if you watch it, the Bellas in their day or even before that, uh, the Basham brothers, or even before that, when there's a tag team, if they're special, if they're twins, or if they look alike, if they dress alike, they kind of switch places in the match. So at one point, one of the Uso brothers, I mean, I guess they're twins. I, I can't tell them apart. So let's say if, if Jay was beaten down in the match, Jimmy would pull Jay out of the match, take his place, and then try to sneak a victory. So that's basically how the Usos beat Miz and Mizdow. And the only thing I, I bring this up for is why do the baby faces result to these heel tactics? To me, it doesn't make sense. That's something you would rather see the Miz and Sandow do. Now, granted, they don't look anything alike, and they can't pull it off, but that's a heel tactic. And to see baby faces do a heel tactic, it, in my mind, it doesn't make sense because the fans should want to boo the Usos for cheating. But instead, the Usos win. The fans, they're still cheering them. So I guess everything worked out. I just, for me personally, it doesn't make sense. But that's just me. Next up, we would see Hulk Hogan would come out to Raw. And, of course, he would promote the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Awareness Month. He would talk about 
some of the women ringside who were fighting the deadly disease. He would even encourage them to come into the ring and have a moment. And, you know, he did his, you know, classic Hulk Hogan where he went to he would put his hand to his ears and he did the pose down. Some of the women were mimicking. They were almost his stunt double. The women uh, were doing the Hulk Hogan ear thing and the pose down. So uh, it was kind of a... In that regard, it was a nice sort of feel-good moment with uh, seeing the breast cancer survivors in the ring. Although, I don't know if Hulk Hogan is the right person necessarily to do that. Of course, he is Hulk Hogan, and he is a you know well-known brand, a well-known character, a well-known in the pop culture. It just kind of feels yeah. kind of weird. That, is, is this really all that the WWE has for Hulk Hogan to just kind of come out and to be the, the pitch person for the Susan G. Coleman or to promote the WWE Network? It's just, I don't know, it's just kind of weird to me to see him in this role. But, you know, like I said, it was a really nice moment. If you saw it, you saw the women there, they acknowledged them, and it, it was a, a nice moment for what it was. It was pretty cool. But, uh Next up, as I mentioned, at, at at Hell in a Cell, Bray Wyatt would make his return. Another superstar would make his return to uh, Monday Night Raw. This time it was Bo Dallas doing an open challenge. Bo Dallas did an open challenge, and guess who came back? Feed me more, Mr. Ryback. Ryback came back, and the surprise of... Uh, Maybe not too many, because the last time we saw Ryback when he was in his hometown of Vegas, he got a huge reception from his hometown fans. But uh, then Ryback, he got hurt, he had an injury, he had to take some time off. Now he's back. He's just as big as ever before, but this time he came back without Curtis Axel. So we don't see Ryback, Curtis Axel. It seems they're pushing Ryback to be a fan favorite which, for the life of me, I can never understand why they made him a heel in the first place. He had the people doing the Feed Me More thing. They were behind him. They turned him heel for some reason. That escapes me. I don't know why. In all the uh, WWE's wisdom, they would choose to turn him heel, which they didn't really do much with him. But finally, they brought him back now. He came back from his injury. He's back sort of as a fan favorite. The fans were into it. When he was wrestling, he would do his sort of signature uh, moves when he hits his meek hook uh, clothesline. And you can hear the fans chanting, feed me more, feed me more. So they're, they're back. They're into Ryback. So we'll see how this goes and whether or not it brings new life uh, into Ryback. That's the thing that's kind of uh, funny about wrestling Guys usually have these cycles. There's cycles when they're really hot. There's cycles when they're really cold. But the once in a while, the cycle will come back and we'll get another shot where they're hot again. So it seems that Ryback may be, could be back to uh, being hot right now with the fans behind them. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I think it would only make sense to bring Curtis Axel into the picture and to maybe be jealous that Ryback has the fan support. And now you have Ryback versus Curtis Axel. That's something I would like to see, but, you know, like I said, we'll see what happens between them. Uh, next up, the two losers of uh, Hell in a Cell would have a match. Cesaro and Dean Ambrose were scheduled, at least, to have a, a wrestling match on Raw, but that wouldn't happen. Instead, Dean Ambrose, again, being the lunatic that he is, he would he would make his entrance to the ring, he would climb up, on the announce table, and uh, he would call out Bray Wyatt. 
Cesaro would make his way to the ring. Dean Ambrose would just grab the microphone that was in his hands. He ran into the ring, and he just started beating the hell out of Cesaro with the microphone. And basically you could hear the the static of the microphone every time he would, you know, nail Cesaro in the head or in the shoulder or whatever. You would hear that from the microphone. And it it just Dambrose losing his mind. The match never started. It never even, it never even like I said, it never started. They, they were just brawling all over the place. He was just beating the hell out of them. And then of course, that would lead to a video on the Titan Tron of Bray Wyatt, and Bray Wyatt doing his usual kind of uh, creepy, you know, presence where he's on the Titan Tron. He's talking in riddles and he's. I don't know what the hell he's saying half the time. He talked about how him and Dean Ambrose are so similar and all this stuff, how they're against the, the the machine and the authority and, you know, they're not your typical, you know, guys and that they're more alike than uh, they care to realize and all this you know stuff. Again, I could have sworn a year ago we saw the same thing between Bray Wyatt and Daniel Bryan, but uh, we're seeing it again with Bray Wyatt and now Dean Ambrose. So we'll see, you know, how this turns out. Again, Dean Ambrose, a very different person than uh, Daniel Bryan was, and I don't think we're going to see Dean Ambrose join the Wyatts by any means. But, uh, again, should be some very interesting uh, promos as they continue to hopefully build their feud. I don't know if they're going to have a match at Survivor Series. I don't know if they're going to be a part of the classic Survivor Series with the Authority and Cena, or maybe they'll have their own uh, sort of Survivor Series, and we'll see the Wyatts versus you know Ambrose, and you know I don't know who he'll be paired up with, but you know we'll see what happens between those two guys. And of course, now we have another Divas match between Nikki Bella and Naomi. As I said before, what the hell's going on with Naomi? I haven't seen her in a while. Naomi was on Raw. She had a match with Nikki. Of course, Brie being Nikki's assistant, she has to do whatever Nikki tells her. And uh, during the match, uh, Nikki kind of hinted toward Brie that, you know, help me win this match. Do whatever you can. So at one point, Brie kind of tried to grab, uh, you know, Naomi's leg to interfere in the match. But you could tell through Brie's uh, expression, she didn't want to do it. She doesn't want to help her sister cheat. She looked really mad at herself for doing it. And even Naomi goes, Brie, what the hell are you doing, you know? And, of course, Nikki, taking advantage of the situation, gets the victory and celebrates like she won the, the Divas title. And Brie instead being very sad and disappointed that, you know, she's in this position where she has to do whatever she said because if she doesn't, then the WWE will fire Brie Bella. So Brie is in a position where either she does what Nikki asks or she quits or she's fired. So she's in that predicament right now. Again, I said before that Dolph Ziggler was seen talking to John Cena. Dolph Ziggler now has a match against Kane, and Kane would do everything he can to beat the hell out of Ziggler to make sure that Ziggler doesn't wrestle for John Cena's Survivor Series team. And again, Kane Ziggler had a nice little match. There was one moment where uh, Dolph does sort of like a stinger splash. I think we are familiar with Sting. He would uh, throw his opponent in the corner of the ring, go in the opposite corner and do a stinger splash to his opponent. 
Dolph Ziggler sort of does something similar. He does his own sort of splash. Well, as Dolph Ziggler was running and jumping into the air to do the splash, Kane hit this sort of European uppercut that I swear it might have beheaded Dolph Ziggler. It was a very, just really great timing. He just nailed Ziggler as Ziggler was flying through the air. Just, uh, again, a really great moment. Eventually, though, Dolph Ziggler would pick up the victory, but uh, that didn't matter because then Seth Rollins would come in and attack Dolph Ziggler, showing that you don't mess with the authority, you don't mess with Kane, and uh, they would do everything they can to stop Ziggler, and that's what Seth Rollins did. So now we've come across the main event. The main event is basically the two winners of Hell in the Cell, John Cena taking on Seth Rollins. So now again we have Kane interfering in the match. Dolph Ziggler interferes because Kane interfered. So now we have even the Seth Rollins stooges, Joey Mercury and Jamie Noble come running in and they're interfering. And then the next thing you know, chaos just sets in and you have all these guys fighting. And then basically the entire Raw roster, for some reason, just comes storming out. So now you've got this whole big brawl between Cena, the Authority, the Raw roster, and everyone's just picking sides and beating the hell out of each other. And uh, eventually it comes down to where, of course, the Authority sneaks away out through the chaos. So basically you see Rollins with Triple H and Stephanie back on the screen again to close the show. Of course, Cena is standing tall. So that's how Monday night ended. Again, it was a show that kind of dragged in some parts. You saw, you know, Cesaro Ambrose wasn't really a match, but again, it showed Ambrose being the lunatic fringe and just being a complete nut job. Uh, The Nikki Bella and Naomi, again, that match wasn't really a wrestling match. That was a match that was designed to just show the relationship between Nikki and Brie and, of course, the stipulation from the Hell in a Cell that she has to be her personal assistant. You know, the the fact that they're building towards Survivor Series, I like that they started that early. Again, I know a lot of people aren't happy that we saw so much of the authority on Monday Night Raw, but that's just going to happen regardless. Again, uh, we didn't see Rusev, believe it or not, despite the fact Rusev picked up the win at Hell in a Cell. You know, the WWE spent that time focusing on Mark Henry turning heel and turning off the big show on that hard tag, which, again, it upset a lot of people. A lot of people, you could not believe how Twitter exploded of fans just going, why the hell did Mark Henry snap off a hard tag? But, you know, again, like I said, this is the PG era. They're not going to do certain things. They have to play it safe. They have to watch everything they do. They have to be politically correct. And, you know, that's just the way wrestling is right now. So maybe not the best Raw. They could have improved it in a lot of ways. But for the most part, you know, everything that happened at Raw was a result of Hell in a Cell or to promote the upcoming Survivor Series. So in that regard, I guess it wasn't it wasn't a great show, but, you know, it was all right for what it was. Yeah, and they still get their numbers. Uh, Monday Night Raw still do pretty well. Uh for the USA Network. Um, okay, let's get to the uh, video game. I believe it came out today. Yeah, okay. that is right. What's the latest? 
Well, of course, uh, as, you, as you said, uh, the WWE 2K15 video game that we've been talking about for the past few months, it was finally released today uh, for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. So basically, if you have a console from the last generation, you can pick up that game, buy it, you can play it right now. You can play it right now. However, if you own a next-gen console, if you own a PlayStation 4, if you own an Xbox One, you do have to wait until November 18th to play W2K15. But if you own, like I said, a PlayStation 3 or a 360, I myself own a PlayStation 3, so I did have the opportunity to check it out and just kind of look through to see what's going on in the game. And uh, it uh, plays very similar to last year's uh, 2K14 game. Uh, It does feel that in some areas it has improved uh, the contact between uh, an opponent. If you're punching or kicking someone, you can feel more of a, a reaction from that. Of course, the graphics are, you know, very more, the resolution is more crisp, more detailed. I imagine if you've seen the commercials for uh, W2K15, the commercials, however, are based on the next-gen game. So when you see those commercials and you think, oh, my God, that that looks so real and so spectacular, that is for the next-gen game. So if you own, like, a PlayStation 3, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's good. It's really great. The graphics are are probably the best of, you know, this current, you know, the past generation. But uh, if you really want it, uh, the best version of the game, you should really pick up the next-gen uh, copies of WWE 15 that come out next month. Those are the ones you want to play. The realism in that is just phenomenal. However, if, you, if you're too excited, you can't wait. If you don't own those consoles, you can still play uh, WWE 15 on the PlayStation 3, on your Xbox 360. It's still a, a great experience if you're a fan of the series. Uh, like I said, the match types are pretty much the same. Of course, you have your standard one-on-one matches. You can have an Extreme Rules match, of course, a Hell in a Cell match, I Quit, an Inferno match. You can have Iron Man, uh, ladder matches, Last Man Standing, cage matches, submission matches, tables matches, TLC, uh, two out of three faults, first blood, false count anywhere. And, of course, you have your standard tag team matches, elimination tag, mixed tag, tornado tag, uh, your triple threat matches, your... Fatal Four Ways, Battle Royals, uh, Six Man Tag, uh, Elimination Chamber. You can have uh, handicap matches, one on two, two on three, one on three. You can have a gauntlet style match. You can have a backstage brawl. You can have, of course, a special referee in which you can play as a referee. You can count the pinfalls during a match. You can count uh, an opponent's outside the ring, a 10 count. And, of course, you have title matches if you want to defend a championship, any of the current championships in the WWE. They also give you an opportunity if you want to defend some of the older championships, maybe a WCW championship, an ECW championship, or even an NXT championship. They have, of course, tournaments in which you can play your own, very own King of the Ring tournament. Uh, There's lots lots of matches uh, the the roster is one of the most updated rosters to date. Alberto Del Rio, Batista, Big Show, Brock Lesnar, 
Bad News Barrett, Big E, Bray Wyatt, Cesaro, Jericho, Cody Rhodes, Damian Sandow, Darren Young, CM Punk, uh, Curtis Axel, Daniel Bryan, Dean Ambrose, Dolph Ziggler, Fandango, Jack Swagger, John Cena, Kane, Eric Rowan from the Wyatts, Goldust, of course, both the Uso brothers, Jimmy and Jay, Justin Gabriel, Kofi Kingston, Luke Harper from the Wyatts, uh, The Miz, Rey Mysterio, Roman Reigns, Ryback, Mark Henry, uh, Randy Orton, Rob Van Dam, which uh, is probably the, one of the first games that we've seen Rob Van Dam in in quite some time, so it was actually pretty cool to uh, play as Rob Van Dam, R-Truth, Santino Morella, Seth Rollins, Steve Austin, Triple H, the Ultimate Warrior, Xavier Woods, Sheamus, Titus O'Neil, Tyson Kidd, uh, The Undertaker, AJ Lee, Brie Bella, Nikki Bella, uh, Cameron, Naomi, Natty Neidhart, Summer Rae, Tamina. Uh, You can you can't necessarily play as them as wrestlers, but they do have managers like Paul Heyman who can accompany your wrestler to the ringside. Uh, Ricardo Rodriguez and even Zeb Coulter are all in the game. Of course, they have hidden wrestlers that you have to unlock. Uh, wrestlers like Ric Flair, Kevin Nash, Shawn Michaels, Booker T, uh, the NXT guys, Rusev, Bo Dallas, Sami Zayn, Corey Graves, uh, Adrian Neville, <clears throat> uh, Kane, I should mention. If you play as Kane, Kane is the mask Kane version. However, there is a, an opportunity where if you want to create your own wrestler, you could sort of create your own Kane in which they do have the the template of Kane's face. So you, couldn't, you can't uh, create your own wrestler. You can create an unmasked Kane, and you can deck out a corporate Kane. But you'll have to create it from scratch, which, you know, it's kind of frustrating. You kind of want to play from the get-go. But at least they give you the opportunity so you're not playing as a mass Kane for the next year until the next game comes out. If you want to play as Kane the way he looks today, which, of course, he's unmasked, you just have to sort of create your own wrestler. But uh, And, again, they have the – there's so many uh, story modes. We talked about the 2K showcase in which you can play as uh, – you see the the long feud between Shawn Michaels and Triple H. There's about 14 matches, I believe, that you can sort of recreate from their rivalry. They also have the Hustle, Loyalty, and Disrespect Showcase, which features none other than John Cena and his rivalry with CM Punk. And I believe they have maybe about 19 matches or so that you can recreate between them. So it's a very interesting CM Punk, as I mentioned, despite the fact that for the most part, he only really wrestled in January uh, of this year. He is featured in the game. He's a part of the showcase in which you can see their rivalry with Punk and Cena. Uh, there's even a an NXT sort of uh, mode in which, you can unlock, like I said, those NXT guys, uh, Neville, Corey Graves, Sami Zayn, Rusev, Bo Dallas. There's a thing called Not .NXT in which you can unlock those guys. Uh, they have, of course, the WWE Universe mode, which is basically if you play the WWE Universe mode, 
it is just a full calendar year of uh, wrestling events, Monday Night Raw, main event, SmackDown, pay-per-views, superstars. You basically have an entire month-long calendar in which you can have your own matches and sort of see, you know, feuds develop sort of on their own that's sort of simulated through the uh, the game itself. So it's something you can play, and it will keep you busy for a number of years. But um, as I, t- I said before, they have, of course, the WWE creation in which you can create your own superstar. I mentioned how you can sort of make your own modern-day corporate cane. You can also, uh, they have other sort of templates of superstars. So let's say, of course, Triple H, who has his short hair, they have a template in which you can create uh, Triple H when he had his long hair, when The Undertaker had his long hair. You can even play when CM Punk had his long hair when he came into the company in 2006. They even have it where you can play as Daniel Bryan uh, when he had his short hair when he came into the company in uh, 2010. So they have all these different sort of templates in which you can create your own superstars and base their old kind of looks that they had over the years. So there's lots of things you can edit. Uh, there's Again, you can edit some of your superstars' ring attire. Uh, one of the first things that I did when I played was I looked at Batista, and Batista has this sort of burgundy, sort of a red uh, ring attire. So you can imagine the First thing I did about to change and then create a new sort of ring attire for Batista is I made him have a blue outfit. A lot of the fans remember earlier this year uh, when people were cheering and chanting and social media exploded with the hashtag BlueTista. Basically, Batista was just decked out in blue and people were having fun with it. Created BlueTista in WWE 2K15 just for laughs. But uh, there's still a lot that will be released as a DLC in the future. But right now, as the game just launched out today on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, these are what you can play right off the bat right now. If you have a copy, you can go out and pick it up and just start playing now. Again, it's very similar to last year's game. It it didn't change very drastically. Uh, Like I said, the graphics are are better. It's a lot smoother, more detailed. These superstars, for the most part, were all scanned by visual concepts, and they did a real great job with really enforcing the realism. Uh, As I said, if you're waiting to pick up from the next-gen consoles, that game will look phenomenal it's almost photorealistic on next gen consoles but like i said if you can't wait to play if you want to play right now uh the last generation ps3 xbox 360 is just as good as experience you'll have a lot of fun and uh you know i'll let you know more of how the the uh showcase modes are as i unlock some of the wrestlers and and play more through the game but for the most part it's a lot of fun i noticed that when you're playing as daniel bryan one of the things that I loved last year in the game were the yes chants. They actually included the yes chants uh, during Daniel Bryan's matches, during his entrances. And for some reason, I don't know if they included it in this year because I, I played as Daniel Bryan and I didn't hear it. I didn't hear the yes chants. So I was very surprised that they didn't make the yes chants stand out as much as they did last year's game. Last year's game, anytime you hit a signature move from Daniel Bryan, like his many kicks 
or whenever he would do his taunt, where he would point his fingers in the air, you would hear the fans chant yes. And that was kind of cool because it was basically exactly what you see when you watch Monday Night Raw or WWE television. You heard those yes chants. It was cool. They incorporated it in the game last year. Unfortunately, they didn't really... And like I said, at least I didn't hear it. Maybe I got to turn up my TV or something, but I did not hear the yes chance. I was a little disappointed about that. Uh, but, you know, again, the sound was good. There's moments where, you know, when John Cena makes his entrance, he sort of talks to the camera. So when you play as John Cena in the game, you can hear John Cena's, you can hear John Cena's real voice, you know, as he points to the camera and says, well, let's go to work. You know, you'll hear John Cena or Sheamus. When Sheamus makes his way to the ring, uh, he does his sort of, you know, he yells out, fella! So you can hear Sheamus yell out, fella. So little things like that, you know, they add to the game. They make it feel more realistic as if you're watching it on your television, watching an actual WWE, you know, program. So little things like that just add a, a little bit more realism to the game. So, again, like I said, it's a lot of fun. So if you if you have a chance to check out W2K15, you know, play it and you know, see how it is. It's, uh, you know, it's a really good game, just like last year. So, uh, like I said, I'm enjoying it so far, and I'll have more to say as I continue to unlock and play through it. Okay, uh, let's uh, take a listen to um, the latest on uh, the Stinger. And we'll come back on the other side. We'll talk about it. What do you do with the man called Sting? I think it's a foregone conclusion. Sting is wrestling at least one match, probably be at WrestleMania, may even go into the Hall of Fame next year. Probably will show up around Royal Rumble time in January and kick off whatever program he's going to be in. And one match I think that they could do at WrestleMania, and it may be the most realistic match at this point, is Randy Orton. The old legend killer, one on one with Sting. Uh, one of the one of our followers on Twitter, Jay, uh, he even had the perfect setup for the feud when I suggested it to him. Uh, with Sting's new DVD out, in case you didn't see the commercials for it, he's got a new DVD out right now. Uh, the 2K15 video game being released in a couple of weeks, and he's right there on the uh, on all the advertising for it, and he's the big you know, pre-order character and the commercials with him. He's a big part of that video game. It would make sense to have Sting show up on Monday Night Raw this month, sometime in these next couple of weeks. Get the big reaction. Talk about how good it feels to finally be inside a WWE ring. I mean, look, it, would it be cool to have Sting come down from the rafters? Obviously, that's not going to happen. Come out from the back wearing the trench coat with the baseball bat and the black and white face paint like we remember him in 1997? Sure. Sure. That initial appearance, the initial reaction to him would be awesome. It would be great to have that be his first appearance in WWE. Um, and to kick off a feud with somebody like The Undertaker or whoever. But that's not going to happen. He's not coming down from the rafters. The Sting of 1997 is dead. He is dead and buried. This Sting is a lot older. His hair is a lot thinner. He walks around wearing a t-shirt, not a singlet. And frankly, I think The Undertaker, the more I see and I, I hear about this guy, and I see photos of him, I think he's done. I think there's a very good chance that we have seen The Undertaker wrestle his final match. 
And so, you know, again, it's not as though your average fan has not seen these Sting mentions on television a million times. They've mentioned his name a lot. They see him in the commercials. It's not like a huge shock. What does this guy look like? I wonder. Like, they know what he looks like. He's been all over the place. It's not a big secret anymore. And I think having him show up for an in-ring promo to promote the video game and to promote all these different things, uh, I, you know, I'd be okay with that. In a perfect world, it would be all those other things I mentioned. But guess what? The world's not perfect. So you do it that way. Randy Orton comes out towards the end of his promo. Maybe Orton lost at Hell in a Cell. He's just lost his mind. He's gone crazy. He's beside himself. He comes out, ends up punting Sting at the end of the segment, maybe in a fit of rage. And we see some of that legend killer come back out. And that way it gets Sting off television because... I can tell you right now, if you bring Sting back now, and there's a lot of people as bad as these shows have gotten begging for Sting to finally show up, you put him on television now, and he doesn't wrestle a match until March, that's going to get real old real fast. And I would not put my faith in these people that they would know what to do with Sting for the next six months to kill time on television before he wrestles that first match. These are the same people, like I said, who don't have enough sense to come up with an idea to send a camera crew to go film Brock Lesnar in his hometown... And you expect that these people have all of these great ideas for Sting, what to do with him over the next five or six months just floating around in their brain? Do you really honestly believe that? Because I don't. So you get him off television. You've now planted the seeds for a feud when he comes back. And you bring him back around January or so. Maybe he screws Orton over in the Royal Rumble. And you build to a match between the two of them at WrestleMania. If Undertaker can't go, and John Cena and Triple H, who were two other opponents, I know that Sting has floated the idea of wrestling. If they're occupied in other matches, Orton makes sense to me as an opponent. I mean, Bray Wyatt could work too. You know, the mind games between them could be cool to watch. But I like the idea of picking up with, with Reigns and Wyatt. Like I said, that, that would be the match I would want to go towards if Reigns is not challenging for the championship. So that's, that's one idea for Sting. Sting and Orton at WrestleMania. And then, of course, you could do Cena and Rusev. It just seems to me like that's the end game with Rusev. They're building him up for John Cena. I, I was shocked that they did John Cena versus Bray Wyatt at WrestleMania this year. So nothing would surprise me anymore. If they wanted to do Cena-Rusev, I could see them doing that. Wouldn't surprise me at all with Rusev finally losing a match. I know the, there's rumors of Cena and Hulk Hogan, but that ain't happening. Trust me, that ain't happening. So... You know, the only other question is now, what do you do with Rollins? I mean, Rollins may cash in at the end, but he's got to have another match on the show. So what do you do with guys like Seth Rollins? What do you do with Dean Ambrose? What do you do with, uh, you know, let alone the Sorrows and Zigglers of the world? There's a lot of unanswered questions. Again, I just kind of sketched this out of my brain as I sit here now today in October 2014, what this WrestleMania card might look like. Uh, so that's just one you know, variation of it. I'm sure a lot of you guys have different cards in your mind and different ideas for what they could do. Uh, but as uh, the lay of the land is right now, that's kind of how I see things. Well, uh, very good commentary, JJ. And uh, what do you think of uh, his idea with Sting and Randy Orton? You know, it, it's funny you uh, you played that clip because oftentimes, you know, we talked about who we want to see Sting in the ring with, and, you know, nine times out of ten, the number one choice is, of course, The Undertaker. It's what the fans want. 
hell, it's even what Sting wants himself. But for whatever reason, you know, we said now that the streak is over, maybe that intrigue is lost. Maybe the Undertaker just can't go anymore. Like we said, you know, it, his last match with Brock Lesnar, it by far was not his best. And, you know, he did mention uh, that uh, Solomon guy that, you know, if you look at pictures of Sting online, or not Sting, if you look at pictures of the Undertaker online, you think, well, man, you know, maybe he did wrestle his last match. You know, he doesn't, you know, whenever you see him, you don't really see the Undertaker anymore. You don't see that, that phenom. You don't see the dead man. You see this kind of, you know, older kind of guy. Does he still have it? Can he still go? I mean, if he wrestles another match, could he get seriously injured? I mean, if he's in the ring with a guy like Sting, I think he's, a, you know, having a better chance of being, you know, safe as opposed to a guy who's young like Brock Lesnar and he's supposed to be this, you know, reckless beast. You know, I think, you know, Taker is more safe in the ring with a guy like Sting. Uh, maybe it won't be the, the greatest match of, of all time. Maybe it won't because they're not in their prime or whatever. But still, the idea Undertaker-Sting is what everybody wants to see. But if it can't happen, I know we talked about, you know, Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt who's very strange and creepy, you know, he could probably do some interesting promos with Sting. They could bring Sting back where Sting, I mean, if you saw the commercials for the WWE 2K15 with Sting and the orchestra and Sting makeup, and I mean, that was just uh, beautifully done. The music, uh, his old theme, and to see that Sting, Bray Wyatt could be very interesting. It would be new. It could be a help elevate Bray Wyatt, especially since he lost to uh, John Cena this year at WrestleMania. What a boost it would be for Bray Wyatt to beat the icon Sting in his first match ever in a WWE ring. Of course, uh, as uh, Solomon said, uh, we've even played clips here on King Jordan Radio where Sting said that, you know, if not The Undertaker, maybe Triple H. You know, it's it's something that, you know, he always thought about uh, when he was in WCW, of course, Triple H, a WWE guy. So, you know, there's that sort of rivalry, of course, now Triple H with the authority, which makes it even more interesting. But then John Cena, again, you have another case where Sting, the ultimate sort of WCW guy who never crossed over, and now you have a guy like John Cena, who's the ultimate WWE guy who's definitely not crossing over there's nowhere else to really go besides maybe tna but you know, i don't see cena doing that but uh you know sting john cena you know that i don't know if fans are dying to see that i'm not sure if they you know would be interested in that although if it happens i'm sure the w will find a way to spin it to make it work or make sense but uh one thing i didn't think about was randy orton and that makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, Randy Orton, the legend killer. He made, you know, a career when he was coming up in the WWE. We talked about when he came to the WWE in 2002. And then he joined Evolution in about 2004. And he was spitting in the face of Mick Foley and Harley Race. And he was taking out an RKOing Jake the Snake Roberts. And he was just, you know, uh, he started feuding with The Undertaker. And he was one of the victims of the streak. Uh, you know, RKO and, uh, you know, all that that was going on back then, uh, you know, Orton could be a good, you know, choice for Sting. The only thing that I don't like about that is as we're watching this now, is it seems that they're, you know, turning Orton into a face. And if Orton is a good guy, 
you're not going to see him challenge Sting. It's just you're not going to see two good guys, you know, facing each other. You're not going to see Randy Orton go, oh, well, I respect you, Sting, and all this. It's not going to happen. That's not Orton's character. But if he's the legend killer, if he can stay heel right now, that would be a very interesting setup. Randy Orton going back to his roots as a legend killer. He sees this legend who's never stepped foot in the WWE, who the WWE is promoting like crazy with the video games, with his DVD, T-shirts. I mean, they're doing everything they can to promote the guy, and he still hasn't stepped foot in the ring. It would be the perfect opportunity for Randy Orton to kill his legend of Sting and to end it at his hands. I mean, wow, that that could be something. That has the potential to be a, a great sort of WrestleMania moment. But, like I said, the downside is if you're watching wrestling right now, it doesn't seem that they're going to put Randy Orton back as the legend killer. I mean, we're seeing Randy Orton turning on the authority. He has the potential to be one of the top you know, fan favorites with, with John Cena if that happens. So, unfortunately, if, if Orton does turn face, I don't think that's going to happen. But, as they brought it up, I do like it, though. I do like the idea. If Taker's not available, and, you know, as he pointed out, we don't know what the hell is going to happen at WrestleMania 31, whether or not Triple H throws himself on the card again, uh, whether or not so many superstars, you know, what they're doing, whether or not Lesnar's even the champion, who the hell knows, you know, what the W will do, especially when they're throwing matches together at the last minute like they did at Hell in a Cell. But, uh you know, Sting Orton, I do like the sound of that. But, like I said, I just don't know if we'll see it. I would rather, even though there's a very slim chance of Sting and Undertaker, you know, maybe Sting Bray Wyatt. And I think Wyatt really needs that boost. But uh, I do like the idea of Orton Sting. It's something that I didn't even think about. So uh, it is a great point that he brought up. No question. Okay, uh, we've heard rumors about it, but let's take a listen to the heat between The Undertaker and Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Time for the mailbag, and then I will have a little announcement at the end of the show. You can send questions to me, the Solomonster, at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from. Jay writes in, I remember reading that Undertaker and Hulk Hogan had some backstage heat over Hogan dropping the belt to Taker at Survivor Series in 1991. Apparently, Undertaker overheard a conversation between Hogan and Vince. Hulk implied that Taker was not ready to be the champion. As a result, an altercation broke out backstage between Hogan and Taker after the match. Hogan claimed that Undertaker tried to break his neck with the tombstone on the steel chair that Ric Flair introduced into the match. Is this true, and is there a real beef between the two? I never heard of there being an altercation between Hogan and Undertaker. The story I heard was very different, and this was backed up by Paul Bear. Uh, who was there, so he would know. The story is that Undertaker, as we all know, he won the belt that night. Ric Flair interfered. He slid the steel chair into the ring. Undertaker tombstone Hogan on top of the chair. And it was so obvious watching it, Hogan's head never hit the chair. So Taker gets the pin. He wins the belt. Hogan lays there forever. He's selling an injury like his neck is broken. They have Patterson. All the referees and officials are in the ring hovering over him. Bobby Heenan's on commentary talking about how Hogan had just earlier in the day met, I think uh, it may have been an NFL player who had just broken his neck and been paralyzed, and Heenan made a crack about how Hogan's going to be sharing a room with him. So they really milked it. Hogan eventually got up on his own power and looked very much shaken up. 
and walked slowly to the back. Now, if I remember hearing the story correctly the way Paul Bearer told it, when Hogan got to the back, he collapsed. And he really sold it like he was hurt. And I think they may have even had to call an ambulance to take him to the hospital. Undertaker felt awful. I mean, he felt terrible because he didn't know. He thought, I, I hurt him. You know, I dropped the guy in the chair too hard. I fucked up. Uh, and, and this is terrible. I'm, I feel so badly about what happened. Well, I don't think this happened until many years later. But a few years later, maybe the following year, maybe it was more than that, uh, somebody showed Undertaker a tape of the match. I don't even know how this all came about, but I don't believe this happened that night. Anyway, Undertaker finally sees a tape of the match, and he sees what I saw and what everybody else saw, which is that Hogan's head never even came close to landing on the chair. And so essentially what happened is Hogan faked an injury, and whatever he may have said to Vince after the fact, whether he badmouthed Taker or, or just, even if he didn't say anything, just the, the act, the idea that he would sell this phony injury, like Undertaker really did almost break his neck and was clumsy and dropped him on his head. I mean, that could have a real negative impact on The Undertaker's career. Now, it didn't, even though Taker dropped the belt. I think that was always the plan for him to drop it a week later or 10 days, whatever it was, at that Tuesday in Texas show. It's not like, oh, you hurt Hulk. We're going to take the belt off of you. We had this big long-term plan for The Undertaker. That's not the case. So things worked out fine for The Undertaker. I don't think Undertaker got a lot of heat for it, per se, but that could have been really bad for him. And and here's Hogan, I mean, basically fucking with this guy's push. He's fucking with this guy's career. When Taker saw the footage and he found out about it, he was pissed. Now, Hogan, I think, was already out of the company at that point or was on his little leave of absence in 92, whatever it was. Uh, so there probably was a lot of heat there at that point. I don't know that Taker ever confronted Hogan about it, but he was not a Hulk Hogan fan, and uh, he was none too happy about it. So that that's how that whole thing went down. And even Paul Bear, you know, he takes the Undertaker's side. He says it was complete bullshit for Hogan to do what he did. And if it went down like that, I agree. I, I think that's complete bullshit. I don't know what Hogan's endgame was there. If he felt threatened by the Undertaker, he was trying to bring him down a notch. I don't really understand why you would do something like that. Uh, but that's not cool. So if there was any heat, there, and there definitely was, I think it was probably squashed a long time ago. Hogan, Undertaker, they worked together in 2002. Um, but that that's how that whole situation went down. I don't think there was ever any sort of physical confrontation or fight. Definitely not that night. Uh, it was more Hogan, I think, collapsing in the back and faking an injury that could have had a real negative impact on The Undertaker's career. Okay, JJ, your thoughts on the two icons, Undertaker and Hogan and the Heat. Wow. I mean, uh, it's funny when you hear stories like that, if a lot of people weren't familiar with it. I mean, although this is, you know, late uh, 1991 or so, I mean, who who didn't Hogan have heat with, uh, you know, at that time? You know, Warrior, Bret Hart, I mean, Macho Man. You know, I think Hogan was doing everything he could to, you know, protect himself and to just stay at the top of the heap. You know, he didn't want to give up, you know, his spot to anybody and here you got this young guy who's just coming in you know he debuted at the survivor series you know that what the year before or so so you know and the WWE seemed to be giving him this little push the way he took the title off hogan and whether or not hogan was given back or you know the back and forth that they had and as he mentioned it only lasted his first title reign what a week or so but if that's true and you know hogan 
you know, faked an injury, not for the cameras either. It's one thing if it's a storyline and, you know, he's faked the injury on camera, he's doing, you know, again, a heel tactic. But to do that in real life and to go backstage and to, you know, pretend to pass out, that's just, you know, that's about uh, as low as it gets. But, again, that was a, a different time. Hogan, I assume, was just, you know, again, watching out for himself. He just wanted to, you know, protect himself. He didn't want to lose his spot. And it just sucks for The Undertaker. Again, he was just coming up, getting an opportunity. Again, I don't think they took the title off of him because of the injury, like uh, Solomon said. But uh, it's just, you know, you hear so many stories that that go on, and sometimes it's just unbelievable that uh, the length sometimes someone will go but uh, as he did point out, years later, nearly a decade later, in you know 2002, you know when uh, Triple H was the undisputed champion, and then I think Hogan beat Triple H, and then eventually Taker would have a, a match with Hogan, and then the Undertaker would beat Hogan for the title. So I would assume by that point in time, whatever heat there was, whatever you know ill feelings there were, you know they it was squashed, and again they worked together and. I don't remember hearing a problem of them working together then. So, you know, whatever happened back, uh, you know, in the early 90s, it's just, you know, it's just that, that's the ugly side of the business. Guys who just are insecure and, you know, they're just looking out for themselves. They're afraid they're going to lose their spot and lose that top paycheck, especially this was a time when Hogan was really, I mean, they didn't really have a whole lot to do with Hogan at that time. They were moving in a new direction, of course, the new generation with Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, Diesel, Bret Hart, Owen Hart. You know, they saw this new sort of crop of superstars come out, and guys like Hogan and Savage and Warrior were kind of pushed aside. And even Savage, who stayed with the company, and, you know, when Hogan jumped ship and Warrior did his own thing, you know, Savage stayed with the WWE. He tried, at least. He tried to stay as long as he could, but then he got relegated to an announce position, and he hated that. He didn't want to be an announcer. He still had a lot of years left to wrestle, but it was just the direction the WWE was moving in. They didn't want these other guys at the top of the mountain anymore. They were focusing on the next generation. So I think Hogan saw the writing on the wall, and he was just doing what he could to maybe get sympathy or, or whatever, but just to keep his spot. But Hopefully, like I said, Hogan of today, hopefully at least, is a different person and wouldn't result to something like that. But, again, it was just that time, that era, whatever Hogan was going through, it's it's just, you know, these things happen. It's just, like I said, an ugly side of the business. No question. All right, the next clip is uh, why Michael Cole has not reached the status of the greatest announcer. Justin Roberts. Gone from WWE, his contract not renewed. The uh, announcement came uh, after Raw Monday night. That's when he was told that he was not being renewed and he was free to go home. So all of this happened quite suddenly. WWE put an announcement up on their website that said, WWE has chosen not to exercise its option to renew ring announcer Justin Roberts' contract. Effective immediately, he is released. WWE wishes him the best in all of his future endeavors, of course, as they always do. So that was really shocking. That was uh, that was out of left field. I don't think anybody was expecting that. He had been with the company for, I think, over 12 years. He had really, in many ways, become the voice of, of WWE in terms of ring announcers. I mean, ever since the Fink, we've had Lillian Garcia, Tony Schimmel, 
from time to time will still do ring announcing. And of late, they've been grooming JoJo down at NXT. I know Eden, Cody Rhodes' wife, Brandy is her real name. She's been doing a lot of ring announcing. And uh, from what I can tell, she may be the new Raw ring announcer. It may be Eden. I guess we'll find out on Raw this week if, if that's official or not. Uh, but, yeah, just very surprising that they would let him go. And I have to, uh, you know, talk about this because JBL took to his blog, since he's already blocked everybody on Twitter, he took to his blog on Facebook to shoot down these reports that have been circulating that Justin Roberts was caught fighting with Michael Cole during Raw or between the commercial breaks on Raw Monday night, and that may have led to his dismissal. I mean, look, who knows what may or may not have happened. You know, In his blog, JBL says, well, it's impossible for anything like that to have happened because... Michael Cole is constantly doing commentary, and we go to the app, and the action continues. And that's true, although the action does not continue during commercial breaks between matches. So when a match ends, and they're previewing the next match coming up, and they go to commercial, they're not still doing commentary on the app. So anything's possible. You know, one guy looks over at the other guy, and, you know, words are exchanged. There are people who were there Monday night at Raw who claim something happened between the two. JBL denies it. Unless Cole comes out or Roberts comes out and denies it, we won't know for sure. But JBL made a statement in his blog that just made me laugh. He he wishes Cole a happy birthday. And by the way, happy birthday, Michael Cole. Apparently it was just his birthday. And then JBL says that, in his opinion, Michael Cole is the greatest play-by-play guy that WWE has ever had. Ever. In its history. He says he's worked with Cole since he started JBL as an announcer, and he's never seen anybody better. And that's true. You know, Cole's the only one that JBL has worked with since he started. I don't think JBL ever got to work with JR unless it was briefly, you know, one of those gigantic four or five guy boots during a Royal Rumble. I don't think the two ever worked together. Cole is all he's known. Cole probably helped him a lot and helped train him and so, sure, that, that's probably accurate. You know, he's the, he's the best I've ever seen because he's the only person you've really worked with. Uh, uh, he has no one else to compare him to, really. He said all the stuff that Cole does with the plugs for social media, the network, the app, he's great at it. Now, here's the deal. It's the guy's opinion, just like he said. He's entitled to it. And Cole probably is his best friend, okay? I know the two are good friends. They're buddies. They work together. They do a radio show together that's now going into national syndication. He's obviously going to be a bit biased. And I don't think Michael Cole is a bad announcer. I think buried beneath all the plugs and all the snorting and the stupid banter back and forth and the fake laughter that we have to sit through on Monday nights, there's a good announcer in there. I thought Cole was good going back to the early SmackDown days when it was him and Taz. You know, Cole and Taz were a very strong announced team for a number of years. And even in more recent years, you know, when they're actually focused on what's going on in the ring, if there's a big pay-per-view main event, John Cena versus CM Punk, you go back to their match at Money in the Bank 2011, which is one of my favorite matches in the last, you know, five or ten years, part of what made that match good was Cole. Cole was on his A-game that night. He was actually a very good announcer. So, We see bits and pieces of it. We don't get to see a lot of it because of all the shit they have him do. But he is a good announcer. You know, I've said it before on this show. I don't envy the job that he has every week, having to plug 9.99 and hashtag this and hashtag that. But somebody ought to let JBL know that just because somebody can juggle hashtags and app plugs, that does not make them the greatest of all time. 
I just listened to Steve Austin's call of his WrestleMania 17 match with The Rock on his podcast. And by the way, it's so obvious the deal he struck with WWE is for him to plug the network on his show in exchange they plug his podcast. But I just listened to his play-by-play of that entire match, and you hear JR's call, really of the whole thing, but especially the finish. And I had just read JBL's blog the day before, and it's like, are you fucking kidding me? It's like night and day. Yes, JR could be over the top with some of his calls. He would practically orgasm on the air during some of Austin's matches. But the key for me is that he made matches feel important. He made them feel like they mattered. Like there was really something on the line. Like nobody else ever has. If you think his WWE calls were hokey, hop on the network and watch any of the old NWA shows that he did back when he was younger. It was the same thing. Some people say Gordon Soley was the best. Some people say JR was the best. You can't go wrong with either one of those guys. It's a generational thing. So you'll have people who watch now who one day will think Michael Cole is the best. And those people would be wrong. He was the best with what he was given at the time. Those other guys would excel in any era. That's the biggest difference. They're timeless. Not not that I think either one of them, like Gordon Soley or Jim Ross, would be very good when it comes to plugging tweets. They may not even be as good as Michael Cole. They'd be okay. They would do it. But when you come down to brass tacks here, the actual matches, the storytelling, they'd be just as good in 2014 as they were in 1996 or 1986. And that's the difference. Michael Cole is really good. Really good. He can be. But he's not the best that WWE has ever had. I mean, well, that, that's a ridiculous statement to make. It's one thing to say, I think this guy's great. I think he's one of the best. To say that he's the best the company has ever had is just so absurd. And frankly, they would be better off having somebody with that same emotion calling their matches now. Maybe people would actually care about the current product. Wow, interesting uh, interesting uh, little uh, clip there, uh JJ, what's your thoughts on Michael Cole and some of the things he said? Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, he pointed out a, a lot of uh, excellent points. You know, we've talked about the, the announcers before, and uh, especially this current crop of announcers with Cole, uh, Jerry Lawler, and JBL, and it's just, you know, there's something missing, that passion. Uh, we talked about Jim Ross always having that passion, always being fired up, and whether or not he was over the top and screaming, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, or you know, by God, or, you know, whatever, you know, he did back in the day, he just made stuff seem important, and he grabbed your attention that whatever was going on in the ring, it mattered, and that it was just, you know, it was the greatest thing going on at that time, you know, JR had a way of really going over the top and just selling the hell out of it, and I don't know, uh, and it's funny, because, you know, when I watched Hell in a Cell yesterday, uh, on the, not yesterday, but on Sunday, on the pay-per-view, and it, you know, Cole did do, uh, he did a good job with the Hell in a Cell. You know, when, when Ambrose and Rollins fell through that, you know, that announced table and they were doing all those high spots and stuff, Cole was good. You know, there are those times like when I was watching Raw and you have these Divas matches and they kind of drift off and they're talking about God knows what. It, it does seem like they're entertaining themselves as opposed to calling the actual match, you know. But then as he pointed out, again, it's a different era. And, you know, you didn't hear uh, Gordon Soley checking the Internet and reading tweets from fans, which Michael Cole will do. I, I will give him credit for that. It, it's difficult 
to call the match that's in front of you or on your monitor when, you know, you have to keep up with social media and you got to check your phone or the laptop that's on their, their table and you got to read the tweets and read fans' tweets and you got to see what people are saying and you got to read what Cody Rhodes is tweeting to, to Jerry Lawler. I mean, what does that have to do with the actual match? Call the match. That's what the fans want. They want announcing, announce the match. But like I said, it's, it's just a different era. And, you know, Cole... Well, he does wear many hats, and a lot of people wouldn't want to be in his position, and I'm sure he has a very difficult time, and it's a hard job, and you got Vince McMahon screaming in your ear. You know, it's not the easiest job in the world, so I do have to give Michael Cole a lot of credit for what he does. Can he be a great announcer, as uh, Solomon pointed out? You know, I do remember the early days of SmackDown when Taz was – you know, the announcer, and I thought, you know, they were damn good. I thought Taz and Cole were great. But, uh, you know, just fast forward to now it's 2014, and you got the three-man booth with Lawler and JBL, and it's like, you know, there are times when they can make the match seem important, and there are times when they just kind of drift off, and they're talking social media, they're arguing with each other, you know, they're yelling, saying, oh, well, if you don't like what I say, then shut up or whatever, and then they do shut up. So now you got JBL trying to call the action and he can't. It's it's like you call come on, this isn't between you guys. We're trying to watch what's going on in the ring. It's not about you. But it I don't know. It's just it's just such a different time, you know. JBL again, maybe you know, he's he's best friends, he's besties or whatever, whatever his relationship is with Michael Cole, I'm sure, as he pointed out. Cole helped him uh, when he came back out of retirement, and then he took up the announced position on SmackDown, and now he's on Raw. So I'm sure, you know, he's gotten very close to Michael Cole, and I'm sure he, he is grateful to Cole. And they are working together. They had the, their thing on on YouTube with uh, the JBL and Cole show. Now they got their radio show. They're, you know, they're doing their business partners. They're working together on stuff, you know, outside of WWE. So I can understand him say, well, Michael Cole's the greatest of all time. You know, he's just, you know, sticking up for his friend because let's face it, I'm sure a lot of people hear that. Uh, they read his Facebook posts and I'm sure they went on Facebook, they went on Twitter and they bashed him and they're complaining and yelling. And that's another thing that could be very annoying. And maybe he said it just to, to get a, a reaction from the fans to, to say, oh, well, Michael Cole's not the best or something. I mean, who knows? You know, when, when people say stuff like that, when they tweet stuff, they're just trying to get reactions from, you know, from the fans. But uh, I don't know. Again, it's a big argument to say Michael Cole, the greatest announcer of all time, the greatest play-by-play or what have you. I mean, it is a generation thing. You know, when I grew up watching, I remember watching Monsoon and Ventura or Monsoon and Bobby Heenan or, of course, you know, Vince McMahon and you're Randy Savage or, you know, Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler, the Attitude Era. A lot of, a lot of you know, people watched in the Attitude Era. They missed the Attitude Era. They loved the Attitude Era. And Jim Ross was that voice of the WWE. He was the voice of the Attitude Era. And I'm not sure anyone else could have thrived the way Jim Ross did in that position in that time in that era. And I don't know if Gorilla Monsoon would have been as you know, as great in that position. Jim Ross was just the right guy at the right time at the right place. And Michael Cole, as Solomon pointed out, this generation of fans who don't know, who never listened to a Jim Ross match, who never listened to a Gordon Soley match, who never listened to past announcers or even announcers like Joey Styles 
in ECW or Mike Tenay uh, in TNA or uh, Tony Schiavone in WCW. I mean, there's been so many different announcers in different wrestling companies, but to today's generation, maybe they do think Michael Cole's the best, and that's only because they don't know any better. This is all they know. So, I mean, on the one hand, I do think Cole has a very difficult job. You know, in my opinion, is he my favorite announcer? No. I mean, even in the WWE, they've had so many announcers from Jonathan Coachman to uh, Todd Grisham, Josh Matthews, uh, even Mike Adamley. I mean, lots of people have have been announcing in the WWE for for years now. But uh, Todd Wright. That's right. A lot of, I mean, my God, I mean, you could, there's so many you could name uh, over the last decade, two decades even, but uh, Cole does have a difficult job to me personally. I don't think he's the best. I do think, you know, whether you like his announcing one night or not, he's, he's doing the best he can in the position he is juggling social media, the 999 and Twitter, but uh, it is a pretty bold statement from JBL to say that. I mean, the greatest of all time, I mean, I, I don't know about that, man. For me personally, I don't. I wouldn't say that. I do think for this generation, he he's just the voice of the WWE, and that's just the way it is. I do wish there were times where, you know, we saw Michael Cole really come out of his shell and be the announcer that calls the matches in the ring what we see and to make the matches feel important. I think he has it in him. I mean, there are times, as he pointed out, the Money in the Bank match with Cena and Punk. Like I said, last night with Hell in the Cell with Ambrose and Rollins, he was into it. He was calling the action. He wasn't goofing off. He wasn't, you know, reading tweets. He wasn't, you know, arguing with JBL. And there are times where he does show that, you know, he's a he's a good announcer. But the best of all time, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, no question. I mean, I got a few people on the list before uh... – Michael Cole definitely, uh, as you said, Gorilla Monsoon and uh, Jim Ross right there. Even Shivani, I like uh, better than I, I do like Cole, but you know Joe Styles and Paul Heyman when when he did it with, with, with uh, that was uh, that was an awesome duo right there. Paul Heyman, how could I forget, man? I mean Paul Heyman and. Uh... Jim Ross calling that one WrestleMania between what was it Austin and Rock? I mean that was phenomenal. Uh, Paul Heyman was great. Paul Heyman, yeah, that was that was just insane, and uh, yeah, just, just amazing stuff out of uh, out of uh, Heyman and Joey Styles when he had a brief, uh, you know, little spot there on WWE uh, on the on the uh, broadcast team. Uh, but in my cold is not, you know, he's not even the best, you know, now, let alone, you know, I think uh, Tanae is better right now, in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, but I want to say If you're a fan of the late uh, in WCW, Mike Tanae was the voice of WCW. If you've been watching TNA for the past 12 years, Mike Tanae has been the voice of TNA and he's always done a great job whether he was with Don West or now he's currently with Taz Cole's old uh, broadcast buddy but you know he's he's the professor he's always calls the action he always calls the moves so you know Mike today another uh, a great announcer and we have uh, Brodus Clay that went over to TNA right 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, Brodus Clay did make his debut. He is associated with Ethan Carter III. He's his new uh, bodyguard. EC3 dropped Rockstar Spud ever since, uh, you know, Spud has been a disappointment to him in his eyes. So he sort of leveled up. And now he has Brodus Clay, who I believe is going by the name Tyrus. That's uh, his new name, Tyrus, uh, in TNA, and he's his sort of bodyguard. And uh, Tyrus actually had a match uh, at TNA in which he defeated I quote-unquote TNA legend. Uh, I lose the word uh, legend loosely, but I guess you could call him a legend if you're a fan of TNA. Uh, Shark Boy. Shark Boy was a big part of TNA in its early days. Uh, he had a you know a very memorable character. Uh, a fan favorite, the cult favorite, if you will. So seeing uh, Brodus Clay as Tyrus and just sort of stormed through uh, Shark Boy, who if you watch Shark Boy, he's definitely not the same guy he was in the early days of TNA. He's sort of mimicking uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He has the whole shell, yeah, and he wears the, the vest, and he talks with that sort of low voice that Austin has, and, you know, he, he bobbles his head and, you know, stuff like that. He plays this kind of silly character, but... You know, it's all in uh, good fun over there. But uh, Brodus Clay, yes, Brodus Clay associated with TNA now, working with Ethan Carter to the third. So I think that's a good, uh, good setup. You know, when Brodus Clay was in WWE, he originally was Alberto Del Rio's uh, bodyguard. But then eventually something happened. I don't know if he got hurt. He, uh, we haven't, we didn't see him for a while. And then a few months later. He would debut as the Funkasaurus, and he had Cameron and Naomi by his side, the Funkadactyls, and then eventually, you know, as that would have happened, he got released, and now he's in TNA. So I hope uh, TNA is a good home for him. Yeah, it should be, and uh, we'll see what happens with those with those uh, those guys. Okay, uh, let me see uh, if we could just see. If, Okay, he left Blackjack, but uh, okay, thanks for uh, thanks for coming aboard. We will speak to you next week, same time, same channel, and uh, have a good week, JJ. You too, King. Thanks for having me on, and we hope to have Blackjack back. Fix your phone, Blackjack. We miss you, and Dominic too. Take it easy, guys. Take care, guys. Okay, everybody, we will speak to you next week. Uh, same time, same place.